All right, well, when I was growing up, uh, you could have described me, I think, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I had a lot of different interests and hobbies. Uh, But one way that you probably would never have described me as a child is as a reader. Uh, I don't think anyone would have accused me of being a reader. It's pretty rare that I sat down and read a book. I was too busy for that. Uh, But when I did read, my favorite genre was historical fiction. I loved historical fiction, and in particular... Like anything about World War II, it just caught my attention. And one of my favorite books of all time, it was a novel called Under the Blood Red Sun. Okay, And I have no idea if this was a good book or not. I was like 10 years old when it came out, but it was one of my favorites. And what this novel was all about was how uh, Japanese Americans were treated and really persecuted uh, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and throughout World War II. And... I remember even, so when I was in college, the first person that I ever uh, communicated the gospel to who then came to Christ was a fellow student of mine from Japan. And we became really close friends, and he actually came home with me to our Thanksgiving meal uh, several times, but my grandpa was there who had served in World War II, and I remember even then there was like a very strong reaction towards this uh, friend of mine from Japan. And I remember, so this, this book, Under the Blood Red Sun, the reason that it stuck with me so much is I just remember being struck with like great sadness over the way that as human beings... Uh, We have such a tendency to divide, to revile, and to hate one another for years and years and generations and generations. It it, it highlighted one of the most really repulsive aspects of our human nature. And it is amazing how things like uh, the color of our skin or our ethnicity, or our cultural background. It is amazing how, when the right circumstances take place, how quickly those differences can produce in us hatred that feels justified. Division that feels justified. As human beings, generally speaking, we are pretty quick to anger, Pretty quick to judge, very slow to forgive. And so that means that over the course of time, our natural drift is towards division. But last week, it marked a turning point for us in the book of Romans. Because Paul, he starts to get into the, the very meat of his theological case for unity in the church. When it comes to believers in the church, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, regardless of your race or ethnicity or cultural background, in Christ we are all one people under Jesus. And that is what Paul, he is writing, not just so that we would intellectually know that, but so that we would live it out together as a body of believers. That we would love and serve one another As one people under God in Christ. He's writing to knit us together. 
And Paul, he starts in chapter 1, I think in about the last place that you would expect for somebody to write who is writing to knit us together. He starts by bringing us all under the condemnation of God. He starts by writing to ensure that we would understand we are all guilty sinners against God and absolutely without excuse. Every person on the planet. We saw last week, Paul wrote in verses 18 through 20 to help us understand that even the person who is like furthest away from God, who has no understanding of God, who who doesn't even know who God is, even that person stands accountable and guilty before God. And it's actually a result of our collective human sin that we have moved away from God into a place of absolute ignorance. It's because of our own human guilt in the first place that the person who doesn't know God even exists. Ignorance of God, it doesn't make anybody on the planet innocent. It is our sin that has caused us to become ignorant. If you want to understand the chicken and egg of humanity, Paul is saying our sin came first. Our sin as human beings came first. And what it's produced in Humanity is all kinds of godlessness and false worship, false religions. Our sin as human beings is the reason that atheists and agnostics and Buddhists and Muslims exist in the world. And so ignorance will not be an excuse on the day of God's judgment. And Paul was not writing this to give us ammunition to condemn other people or throw it in people's faces or be jerks to people of other religions. Instead, remember, he was writing to humble us. To humble us. And to unite all of us in our legitimate need for Jesus. And he's going to spend quite a bit of time to help us understand that no matter where we are, whether we know nothing of God or we know absolutely everything there is to know, humanly speaking, about God, what our lives and hearts demonstrate is that all of us are genuinely in need of forgiveness through Christ. And so what Paul is going to do in our passage today is he's going to walk down the path of how we moved from sin to ignorance and then from ignorance into all kinds of utter depravity as human beings. He's going to walk through the story arc of human beings, really from creation onward, and he's going to show that our sin, it moves us into ignorance, but we don't stop there. And in our ignorance, we move into all kinds of utter depravity. We push out the God of the Bible. We push God out of our culture and out of our lives in our ignorance. And as the God of the Bible is squeezed out of our culture, we don't become more rational, logical, tolerant, reasonable, loving human beings. Instead, as God is squeezed out in our ignorance, we become more and more depraved. And Paul spells it out as a three-part progression. He walks through 
how in our ignorance we moved to sexual immorality, from sexual immorality to homosexuality, and eventually into all kinds of moral perversion. And where he begins is with the sexual immorality of human beings. He starts with sexual immorality. Now, very quickly, I want to define for you sexual immorality. And this is important. Sexual immorality is any kind of sexual fantasizing or lust. So, in the mind, in the heart. Or sexual activity. So, actually physically acting out. Sexual activity that happens outside of biblical marriage. Okay? Sexual immorality. It is any kind of sexual lust or fantasizing that happens in the mind and in the heart. Or sexual activity that happens outside of biblical marriage. And this is important. I said marriage, not dating. And I want you to notice... The roots of sexual immorality. In Romans 1, Paul, he's going to show a little spotlight on where sexual immorality flows from as we look at just the the narrative of human history. So Romans 1. So again, remember, let's just step back one second and remember... Genesis 1. Okay, so we all preach through Genesis. If you've been in our church for more than a year or so, you you were with us as we walked through Genesis. God created human beings to bear his glorious image, to multiply that image in the world, and then to bring the world under his loving lordship, under his authority. That's why he's made us. He loves us. There is so much life in that. When we bear his image, when we multiply his image, when we walk under his authority... That's why he made us, okay? But what happened with human... So every human being on the planet, like we should walk in God's image, be worshiping him joyfully, walking under his loving lordship. That's what should happen. That is not the way that the world is. If you look around, you realize very quickly, that's not the world we're living in. How did we get there? Paul is going to explain some of that right here in Romans 1. He says, for though they knew God, which they did, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And then they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. You can underline that phrase. What a strange phrase. They worshipped images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, verse 24, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. The the sexual desires were already there. And God simply delivered them over to the evil desires of their own hearts. Now notice the roots that Paul addresses of our sexual immorality. Where, Where does he trace this back to? 
He says, even though we knew God, we didn't glorify God or show gratitude to him. You can see this playing out in the book of Genesis. If you want to watch the story arc of humanity, just go to Genesis and watch this play out. And instead of worshiping God, we exchange the worship of God with different worship. We are people made to worship. Human beings will worship. No, like nobody can be absent of worship. No human being on the planet can just like sit on their hands and not worship anything at all. We will worship, but it's a matter of what we'll worship. And we exchange the worship of God with different worship. First and foremost, the first thing he mentions in verse 23, it's the worship of images resembling mortal man. What an interesting idol that we would worship, false god that we would worship. Images of the human body. And because of our messed up worship, God says that he simply gave us over to the sexually immoral desires of our hearts. He draws a direct line from false worship to sexual immorality. There's wisdom in that. And think about it. If you worship images resembling the human body or images of the human body, how long does it take to fall into sexual sin and temptation? So much of our society today, and Paul, obviously, he's writing 2,000 years ago. He's He's not writing, per se, with our culture in mind. But how much of our society, how much of our culture is built on the worship of images of the human body? Well, you can't escape it. You, you can't even find a way around it. Like if you turn on your TV or you drive down the road, you hop on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, or whatever other social media you want to hop on. Without any effort at all, you'll be inundated with images of the human body that are not designed to point to the glory of God, They are designed to lure the human heart towards worshiping the human body. And sexual sin, at its roots, it's a worship problem. It's disordered worship. It's misplaced worship. It's a problem of our, in other words, it's a problem of our affections. What we actually adore. And when we adore images of the human body... Rather than adoring God, we will walk in sexual sin. There's no doubt about it. And the thing about worship is our hearts have a very hard time worshiping two things at the same time. It is very hard to worship God and simultaneously worship images of the human body. We're going to make a choice. We're going to have to make a choice. And when we adore the wrong things, when we adore created things rather than our creator, when we adore images of the human body rather than our Savior Jesus, it will move us into sexual sin and perversion. And we might feel like sexual sin is private and it doesn't hurt anybody. That is not what God says. We might feel like our sexual sin is something we can get away with. That's not what God says. Romans 1.24, he says their bodies were degraded among themselves because of our sexual perversion. 
It degrades our bodies. And that's true in many ways. I don't know if people realize, I mean, we have done so many things to try to prevent the consequences of sexual perversion and sexual immorality, but still our society is devastated by sexually transmitted diseases that are the result of sexual immorality. The world has been ravaged by sexually transmitted diseases, which is the result of sexual immorality or human trafficking. There are millions of people actually enslaved today as sex slaves. It happens all over the world. Why? Like, why would human beings enslave other human beings as objects of sexuality? It is because of wrong worship. And not only that, it's because there's a huge market for it. There is a huge thirst and appetite for pornography, for example. You see, the problem of human trafficking, at least in part... It is a problem that exists because men and women sitting in church pews go home and watch pornography. And that is a problem of worship. And we might think, look, all of this sexual sin, no, it's just, it just happens between ourselves, it's, it's, it's not going to hurt anything or hurt anyone. But I don't think people realize the devastation that it has on marriages, for example. It destroys and perverts and harms our relationship with our spouse. It, it perverts the way that a husband sees his wife or a wife sees his husband. It does. See, God has designed us so that when we engage in sexual activity, we actually were bonded to those that we engage with. And when we engage in sexual immorality, we are engaging in an activity that's going to bond us to people who are not our spouse. That harms marriages. It, it destroys and harms our parenting. It does. It affects our witness to our kids. And not only that, but when people are engrossed in pornography and sexual sin, it's like they're walking in a fog. They are detached, easily agitated, because they are used to living in a fantasy world where they are constantly gratifying the desires of their flesh. And when you do that, it is extremely hard to walk in the Spirit. When we're living in a fantasy world where we constantly get what we want and we give nothing of ourselves, it will impact our relationships with our kids, with our spouse, even with our friends. It destroys us from the inside out. Sexual sin destroys us from the inside out. And, and, and the point of this is not to bring condemnation and heap condemnation and guilt upon people. The point is that 
Paul, and, and Paul is writing about our sexual sin so that we would be genuinely humbled in our need for Christ. We would see the problem as a worship problem and we would turn to Jesus and worship him. Okay? But it does destroy us. It does destroy us from the inside out. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, Flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Get as far away from sexual immorality as you can. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. He's saying your body is to be a temple of God's Spirit who lives inside of you. But sexual sin destroys our bodies. It destroys that good work of the Holy Spirit within us. And remember where it comes from. It is a worship problem. If we want to guard our lives from sexual immorality, we must guard our worship. We guard our affections. We guard our adorations in the Lord. Guard your affections. Guard your love. Guard what you spend time loving. Are you guarding time to adore God in prayer? See, we need, we need to guard time to actually get alone with the Lord and just adore Him in prayer. Are you guarding time in God's word? When we get in God's word, we're not just checking a box. That's not what we're doing. If we are, it'll be worthless. When we get time in the word, a big part of that is worship. That's what it is. It's adoring the Lord in his word. The work that he has done. The character and nature of God. It's revealed to us in the word. And so we come to the word and we adore God through his word. Are you being filled up with adoration here at church? Again, church, it's not just something we do. It's not just a box to check. It's not just something that we endure and get through. If it is, it will mean almost nothing in our lives. But really, church, it's designed by God so that we would come together here and we would pray with one another. We'd be fixing our eyes on the Lord, adoring Him, beholding Him. As we sing together, it's designed by God. Why does God command that we sing to one another and to him when we gather together? Because he's aligning the adoration of our hearts towards him. Because he knows when we worship wrong things, when we worship created rather than creator, it's only a matter of time before we go running in the wrong direction to all kinds of destruction that's going to destroy us and get us killed. And break our relationships. So he says, look, when you gather together, I want you to actually adore me. With one another. Encourage one another in it. And Paul says, when our adoration of God is exchanged for the adoration of other things, we move towards sexual immorality. If there's sexual immorality in your life, it, it is a problem of worship. It's a matter of worship. We need to guard our worship. And as human beings, we didn't just stop at sexual immorality. Paul says we moved beyond that into homosexuality. We moved into homosexuality. And again, pay close attention here 
to the progression that Paul spells out and the roots of homosexuality in humanity. Paul says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. When you exchange the truth of God for a lie, when you worship created rather than creator, it does not lead to a more logical, rational, tolerant, reasonable, loving society. It will move human beings to sexual perversion that goes from natural to unnatural to more disgraceful passions. Which is what homosexuality is. It is sin against God and a perversion of God's design. Now in our culture... We equate a statement like that with hatred. Okay, so in our culture, to make the statement that homosexuality is sin and the perversion of God's design, that is equivalent to hatred because we have made sexuality our identity. And so to condemn homosexuality in our culture is equivalent to hating the homosexual. Because that's what it is in our culture. It's an identity. But remember why Paul wrote this in the first place. Did Paul write this full of hatred and vitriol and anger and, anger and reviling? No. Paul, Paul wrote this to unify us in Christ. To bring us together in Jesus. And see, for Paul, understanding that someone is living in sin or understanding that somebody is actually guilty of real sin against God, that never moved Paul to hatred. That didn't push him to hatred. It was the very basis of his compassion and desire for people to know Christ. It was the very basis for the love and unity that Paul walked in in the church. And so Paul has no problem calling out homosexuality as sin. Because if you're actually guilty, then you actually need Christ. And Paul was moved in real compassion to do whatever it took to bring, to the, to bring the gospel to those who actually stood guilty before God. Now, this is not the main point of our text, but I do want to take a few minutes here and address a question that I think is extremely important to address and relevant for the cultural moment that we live in, which is, why? Why is homosexuality sin? Why is it wrong if two men or two women who love each other deeply who are committed to one another, perhaps even in a marriage union, 
just so happen to be attracted to one another and want to be together. Why do Christians insist on calling that wrong? How can we say love like that is wrong? Now, the simple answer is it's because God condemns homosexuality in his word. Okay, that is the simple answer. Just like he condemns lying or murder or stealing. It's exactly what Paul is doing here. He is condemning homosexuality as sin. As plainly as he condemns greed and murder in the very next sentence. But the question I want us to think about is why? Why is it condemned? That's the real question. If a man is born with sexual attraction towards another man and he finds the love of his life in another man and they come together in a monogamous marital union, isn't the love that he feels the very same love that I feel towards my own wife? Isn't the love that a man can share with another man The same thing as the love that I share with my wife. We just so happen to be wired differently. We might feel similar feelings, but marriage is not a feeling. Sexual relationships, sexual union, it's not a feeling. It is an actual covenant relationship actually designed by God, our Creator, to bear His glorious image in a unique way in the world. That's what sex is. That's what marriage is. It's a covenant relationship. Actually designed by God. This is important. Like, we did not create or invent sex. Sex wouldn't exist if God didn't create it. Marriage would not exist if God did not create it. And he designed it or created that union as a covenant relationship to gloriously bear his image in the world. Sex exists between two human beings because God made Adam and looked at Adam and said, it's not good. That you are alone. Like this is actually why sex exists in the world. God created Adam. He looked at Adam and he said. If you are supposed to bear the glorious image of God. And multiply that image in the world. Remember we talked about that right at the beginning. Genesis 1. That's what I've created you for. And he said. Incomplete. Humanity is incomplete. So what he did is he designed, created the woman, the perfect counterpart for Adam. Similar in many ways, like him in many ways, but different in some very important ways as well. And God created them, designed them with biological differences that come together and fit together Perfectly, And when they do, not only do they uniquely, gloriously bear the image of God. 
but it's what produces multiplication and multiplies his image throughout the world as God designed and intended. Like literally nothing else in the world can. And God looked at them together and he said, now that is very good. And he created the covenant of marriage through sexual union, through sex. It is a covenant relationship. He created it to bear his image in the world and to multiply his image in the world all to his glory. For the purpose of glorifying our God. That's why sex exists in the world. In other words, sex is not the means by which I gratify the desires of my flesh. The desires that we have, they are to be tools that God is using to draw us into relationships that bear his glorious image and multiply his image in the world. And we all have desires within our hearts. Again, if you look back at verse 24, we we realize we all have desires within our hearts that don't sync up with that. We have desires that that like spill all the way over the cup and, and they're... They move into all these places that they are evil and perverted and degrading. Sex does not exist to gratify all of the desires of my flesh. It exists to point the world to God in His glorious image. And there is only one sexual union designed to bear God's glorious image. It is the union of one man and one woman in marriage, in the covenant of marriage. And everything outside of that, it's a perversion and a distortion of God's image, and therefore, it's an abomination. It does not glorify God. It does not point to the glory of God. See, this is why we define sexual immorality right at the beginning. It's, it's any sort of sexual fantasizing or lust or sexual activity that falls outside of biblical marriage. There's one place and one place alone where our sexual desires or activity actually glorifies the Lord and that's what God has created sex for. Marriage does not exist to serve my sexual desires. My desires exist to serve the covenant of marriage in order to point the world to God. And homosexuality doesn't point the world to God. It's not what he designed to bear his image. And I want to be really clear. That is not, I do not say that to condemn the person who is attracted to others from the same sex. It is just to say that like everybody else in the world, when we find in ourselves desires, sexual desires that fall outside of the one covenant relationship in the world that glorifies God, we need to surrender those desires, not live out those desires. 
not entertain those desires. We need to forfeit those desires to the Lord because we were made to glorify God, not to gratify desires of our flesh. And sexual perversion, it is what human beings and societies and cultures move towards when the God of the Bible and worship of the God of the Bible is replaced with worship of other things, of the created rather than the creator. We need to guard our worship. And once that dam is breached of sexual perversion, it's like nothing is off limits. And cultures will find themselves engrossed in all kinds of moral depravity and perversion. That's where things inevitably go when human beings stop worshiping God. We move to all kinds of moral perversion. We we are not moved. When God is squeezed out of culture, it doesn't lead to people being logical and rational and reasonable and tolerant and loving. This is what it moves towards. Romans 1.28 Because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, coming up with new kinds of ways to sin against God. Disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they even applaud when others practice them. When you take God out of culture, out of schools, out of science, out of everywhere you could possibly imagine to remove God from, it does not move us to become logical. Rational, reasonable, tolerant, loving human beings. We start inventing evil. We, we start just inventing new ways to sin and walk in perversion. Look at how Paul closes. He says, although they knew God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. We put on marches and rallies to celebrate the systematic murder of unborn children. We throw parades to celebrate homosexuality and transgenderism and literally every other kind of sexual perversion that we can possibly invent and come up with. And it's never enough to tolerate it. We celebrate it. Remember why Paul is writing this. See, sometimes we, we, we can look at the sin of others. Or, or we can read something like this from Paul and we can think, yeah, go get him, Paul. And our hearts can puff up and inflate with pride. And we can think, I'm so justified in all of my anger and vitriol and hatred and reviling. Paul's not writing this to arm us with ammunition to go out and smash homosexuals and pro-choicers and liberals and atheists. Paul is writing to humble us. And he is writing to bring us all under condemnation 
of our guilt before God so that we can be united in our need for Christ and ultimately united as believers in the church under Jesus. Paul is about to bring the hammer back upon all of us. Now, does Paul want to convince you that sexual immorality and homosexuality and greed and murder and pride are utterly disgusting and sinful? Yes, he does. Does Paul want to convince you that those who engage in such things are guilty before God? Yes, he does. But even more than that, I think Paul wants us to see as in a mirror. And I think he wants us to see in that mirror that the real problem of our sin is a problem of worship. Adoring the wrong things. What we really need is the worship of Jesus. Adoration of Jesus. And so rather than being angry and frustrated and judgmental towards everybody else who's all guilty of sin. He wants us to have real compassion and love. And I think until you can look at someone in their sin and call it sin. And at the same time look in the mirror and see the sin in your own heart, you really can't have real compassion and love for people until you can understand our collective need for Christ. You really can't be knit together compassionately with one another in Christ. You know what's scary about Paul's list? You read through it. I mean, the scariest thing about Paul's list here starting in verse 29. He's describing like all of the things that live in my own heart. It is disgusting what lives inside of my heart. These things are there. Pride, envy, deceit, unloving, unmerciful. Like when I'm offended. There's this sick, twisted part of me that wants vengeance. Not mercy. When I sin, there's this sick, twisted part of me that wants to hide it and be deceptive, not just confess it. When I get hurt, like there's this sick, twisted part of me that wants to withhold love, not give it. All of it lives in me, and it's like just lurking in the shadows, ready to come out. But it all stems from a worship problem. Paul is telling us, if you want to guard your life from moral depravity... Guard your worship and your affections for God. And we have no problem guarding our idol worship. We will guard the things we love. If we have a particular TV show or the NFL or good coffee or a beach vacation, we will guard those things that we love. We will carve out time for them and make sure they happen. Okay, But what about the worship of God? What about our adoration of God? Are you guarding your time? Adoring God, beholding God. As we close this morning, I want to give you three points of practical application, and I'll run through these fairly quickly. Number one, see opportunities to adore God. We need to be people who see the opportunities we have to adore God. You see, reading the Bible, it's an opportunity to adore God, to set our eyes on the Lord, to see His character, what He has done, what He is like, and adore Him. In prayer, it's, it's an opportunity for us to adore God, to get our eyes on the Lord, to step out into his creation and just adore him. When we come together in church, this is an opportunity to be filled up in adoration for God. 
That is what it is. Like when we sing together, when we pray together, when we're in the word together. So see it that way. See this as an opportunity to behold and adore God. Don't miss it. Don't just check it off the box. Don't just endure it. Don't just get through it. Don't just sit daydreaming about all the other things that I've got going on today. Adore God. Second, prioritize time to adore God. Adoration takes time. We understand this. We know this. The things we love, we protect time for them because it takes time to love. Adoration demands our time. And I want to encourage you. There are specific things that God has designed for us to do which draw us into adoration of Him. So why is it that we talk about getting in the Word of God on a regular basis? Because God has given us His Word in part that we would spend time adoring Him in it every single day. If, if being in the Word of God, if reading God's Word every day is not yet a habit in your life, I want to challenge you. Make it a habit of your life. If you're going to adore God, you have to carve out time to protect your heart in adoration of God. Use the book of Romans as an opportunity to build this habit in your life. Just start chipping away 10 minutes a day reading the book of Romans. And then don't stop there. Keep going. Make it a lifelong habit to adore God in his word every day. And to adore God in prayer every day. And to adore God as you come to church every week. Don't skip it. Don't don't be lazy. Don't miss the opportunity. I know I'm preaching to the choir because y'all are here. But tell your buddies. We want to adore God, and we need to prioritize time for it. Number three, close our time adoring God together. That's what I want to encourage you with. We've got 10, 15 more minutes together. Adore the Lord in this time. As we take communion together, as we sing together, adore the Lord. Behold Him. Fix your eyes on Him. Worship Him. I know it's familiar, but our time of communion, it really is supposed to be a time that is full of worship, full of adoration and love for God because of what he has done. We remember the work of Christ on the cross. What that does is it fixes our hearts in adoration towards him. We remember that his body was broken for us as we take the bread. We remember that his blood was actually poured out for us, that our sins could be perfectly forgiven, removed as far from us as the east is from the west. We remember that. As we take the cup together. And so I want to encourage you. Spend this time in communion and singing together in real adoration of the Lord. If you are a believer in Christ, I want to invite you to join us at the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Okay, The elements for uh, communion, they're right under the seat in front of you. And at this time, if you'd like, you can grab those elements again. If you are a believer in Christ... Communion is a time for us as believers to worship God together through the family meal. Okay, so you can grab those elements. If you are not yet a believer, I want you to know communion, it is not yet for you. But our hope and our prayer is that one day you would join us at the Lord's table. And I also want you to know that the problem is not a problem of not being good enough. None of us are good enough. The problem is a problem of worship. And it is through the worship of Christ. 
by repentance and faith in Jesus, that we are made right with God, that we receive forgiveness in Christ, and we actually get to join fellow believers at the table of God. So I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a believer, don't take communion, but do seek the Lord. Do seek Jesus. If you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, ask those questions. Okay? So I'm going to pray. I'm going to get us going here on a time of communion. I want to invite you to, uh, as we commune with one another, take some time, even turning your heads to a neighbor or two, and pray with one another, uh, and then sing. Sing with us and fix our eyes on the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, God, for the gift of salvation through Christ and his work on the cross. Thank you that we can come together at your table forgiven because of the body of Jesus broken for us, the blood of Jesus poured out for us, Lord. May this time draw our hearts closer to you, God. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.